respect to salvation, in this next section, Paul makes a transition from God's sovereignty to human responsibility. Verse number 30 says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not attain that law. Now, now this sounds shocking to the ears. In reading this, it, it, it's almost like it, it doesn't even make sense. On one hand, Paul has just acknowledged that Israel pursued righteousness, and yet they never attained it. And then on the other hand, the Gentiles who did not have God's law, they didn't even know God's law, they weren't even trying to intentionally pursue righteousness, and yet they were the ones obtaining righteousness. May you understand that Paul is still addressing whether salvation is by works or by grace. Israel has tried to to use their works to earn salvation. And so they pursued salvation by works and not by faith. They rejected grace righteousness and they tried to please God with law righteousness. Instead of allowing their religious privileges that Paul has identified in verses 4 and 5 of this chapter, Instead of allowing those privileges to lead them to the Savior, they use those privileges as a substitute for the Savior. The question is, how is it possible that God would give salvation to those that did not pursue righteousness and withhold it from those that were actually trying to pursue it? Paul asked the same question, just with fewer words. Look at the very next. Look at verse number thirty-two. He asked the question with the question, "Why? Why? Why didn't Israel receive salvation if, in fact, they pursued salvation?" So, not only does he ask the question, he also gives us the answer to the question. He says, "Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works." They stumbled over the stumbling stone. This was the tragic error of Israel. It's the same tragic error that still exists among people today. The Israelites pursued righteousness, but they pursued it in the wrong way. They pursued it in their own strength. They chased after it with their own works. The Israelites failed to realize that salvation is by faith and not by anything that we might do. And as a result, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Let me be as clear as I can be. The stumbling stone mentioned here is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus did not conform to their expectations so because he didn't fit what they were wanting or looking for, rather than receive him, they rejected him. So Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews. And Jesus remains a stumbling block to all those who 
by pride seek recognition for doing it on their own rather than in submission, submitting and surrendering their own lives to the Savior. Some people try to seek after, long to uh, work their way to God. And so some people think that God will simply overlook the minor issues in their life when He compares it to all the good things that they did. Some people think that going to church, doing good deeds, giving offerings, or or being nice to other people will be enough in the end. But Paul's words here are a harsh reminder that this approach never succeeds. And so to show... uh, that God anticipated this, Paul makes a couple of quotes from Isaiah chapter 8. So let me share those references with you first. Isaiah chapter 8, verse number 14 says, But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then in chapter 28, verse number 16 It says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. And so, by combining both of those statements, by combining both of those references, notice what Paul says in verse number 33. He says, just as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And the one who believes upon him will not be put to shame. So therefore, like we need to consider what type of righteousness are we pursuing? Are we depending upon our good works or our good character to win out in the end? Or Are we trusting in Christ, in Christ alone for salvation? God does not offer salvation on the basis of our birth, nor does He offer salvation on the basis of our behavior. He offers salvation by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2 beautifully says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is ultimately for those who realize that they can never be good enough. And upon their realization that they can never be good enough, they trust and depend on the righteousness of Christ to become their righteousness. And it's only by putting faith in what Jesus has done will we ever be saved. And if we do, Scripture tells us that we will not be put to shame. Or in other words, we will not be disappointed in any way. No one can deny that there are many mysteries connected with God's sovereignty and a need for a human response. While we can't deny it, I want you to understand that nowhere 
does God ask us to choose between these two truths? Nowhere. And I believe it is because both come from God and both are a part of God's plan. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility do not compete against each other. They cooperate with each other. And the fact that we cannot fully understand how they work together does not deny the fact that they do work together. I love what Charles Spurgeon once said. He was asked by a friend, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? And Charles Spurgeon said, I never try to reconcile friends. A wise man. A wise man. The main thrust of chapter 9 is clear. Israel's rejection of Jesus does not deny the faithfulness of God. Romans 9 does not negate Romans 8. I mean, think about how chapter 9 begins. Chapter 9 begins with the great paradox. It, it, it lists Israel's privileges that they had extended unto them. And so how can their unbelief be explained when you understand the privileges that they had? To be clear, it's not because God was unfaithful in His promises. For He has kept His promise with the Israel inside the Israel. And that's all about uh, verses 6 through 13. In, in verses 14 through 18, we see that it's not because God is unjust. No, for neither Him having mercy on some and hardening of others is in no way incompatible with the justice of God. Then we get in verses 19 through 29. It's not because God is unfair to blame Israel, or it's not because God is unfair to hold each and every one of us accountable. No, because God has remained faithful to his own character and God has acted in accordance and in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Therefore, how can their unbelief be explained? Well, their unbelief is rooted in their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Romans 10 continues to address what was introduced in verse number 30 of chapter 9. I said it on Wednesday. You, you do realize that chapter divisions didn't come for a long time later when we had the canon of Scripture. And for me, sometimes the chapter divisions are problematic and confusing. I would have put the chapter division at the end of chapter uh, 9, verse number 28, because, uh, I'm sorry, verse number 29, because verse number 30 makes a transition. But guess what? Nobody asked me. Chapter 10, verse 1, continues what was begun in chapter 9, verse number 30. When Paul has moved from divine sovereignty to human responsibility, having stated the fact that Israel's stumbling over the preceding verses, now he is going to explain their rejection of Jesus. But before he does just like he did in verse number 1 of chapter 9, and just like he's going to do in verse number 1 of chapter 11, 
Paul expresses his deep spiritual burden for the salvation of his people. Look at verse 1. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. You would think that Israel as a nation would have been eagerly expecting the arrival of the Messiah. For centuries, they had known about the Old Testament prophecies. They, they'd pursued and practiced the law. Remember, according to Galatians, the law that served as a schoolmaster to lead them to Christ. And so, you would think that they would have been well prepared to receive Jesus rather than to reject Him. Which raises a big question. A question that I hear sometimes today. And that is, what will happen to the Jewish people who believe in God and yet reject Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question. I have an answer for you. Because Jesus is the most complete revelation of God, no one can fully know God apart from knowing Jesus. And because God has appointed Jesus to bring salvation to mankind, let me be clear, no one can come to God by any other means other than through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way. It doesn't matter your birth. It doesn't matter your behavior. There is no other way. Jesus declares in John chapter 14, verse number 6, He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. He's the only way. So, just as Paul did, we should wish and, and pray that Jews would be saved. That they would come to a, a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so we should pray for them to receive salvation. We should lovingly share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. In fact, now's a good question, or now's a good point to ask ourselves the question, who do you desire to be saved? Can you think of individuals in your life? Family members? Spouses? Children? Grandchildren? Friends? Neighbors? Who do you desire to be saved? When you're thinking you identify them, let me ask you this. Do you pray for them regularly? Do you pray for their salvation? The, the deep desire that Paul had for his people, do you have that same desire for their salvation? Not only do you pray for them, but do you consistently share the good news with them? It's not a matter of, well, I said it one time 20 years ago, they, now, they know how I feel about this situation. No, do you consistently share the good news with them? Do you leverage your conversations in a way so that you might share the gospel, the hope of Christ with them? See, God had sought to prepare the nation of Israel to receive the Messiah, but when Jesus came, they rejected Him. Straight out rejected Him. John chapter 1, verse number 11 says that He came to His own, 
And those who were His own did not receive Him. And so how do we explain this great tragedy? Well, Paul gives several reasons why Israel rejected Jesus as the Messiah. In verse number 1, he reminds us of his heart's desire. And that was the longing that he had, the deep burden that he felt for the salvation of his people. One of the reasons why they rejected Jesus was they didn't feel they needed salvation. They didn't feel they needed salvation. And there was a time when when Paul would have agreed with his people. For he himself opposed the Gospel. He himself considered Jesus to be an imposter. Israel thought that the Gentiles were the one who were in need of salvation. And that they were good in and of themselves. In fact, the only salvation they were looking for was a political salvation. They failed to understand their great need for a personal salvation from their sins. It's one of the reasons why they rejected Jesus is because they didn't feel they needed salvation. Number two is that they were distracted by their zeal for God. I gave a hint of this one earlier. Oh, this verse 2 is frightening. Verse 2 says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. The Israelites obviously had knowledge of God, but they didn't have full knowledge. If they had full knowledge, they would not have stumbled over Jesus. They wouldn't have tried to seek after righteousness on their own works. They would have received the righteousness given by grace through faith in God's Son. There is a a, a deep sense in which this verse is absolutely terrifying. Look at it. Paul is describing people who are under the judgment of God and yet... They have a zeal for God. The problem with their zeal for God was that they were so busy trying to keep the law that their zeal was actually keeping them from understanding God's way and means of salvation. Paul understood their zeal. So zealous were the Israelites that they even sought to improve upon God's law. And so they added meticulously their own traditions and customs, making them equal with the law given to them by God. So Paul understood their zeal. Paul himself had had possessed that zeal. The zeal for the law. The zeal for the traditions. He describes it in Galatians chapter 1. Verse 13 and 14, Paul says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul understood their zeal. 
Paul himself had had that zeal. He experienced their zeal. And Paul knew that their zeal was not based upon knowledge. Their zeal was based upon experience, traditions, customs, their own works, their own efforts, not on true knowledge. It's sad to say, many religious people today make the same mistake. They foolishly think that their good deeds, their religious works, will save them in the end. The Israelites, they didn't feel they needed salvation. They were distracted by their zeal for God. And verse number 3 gives us three more. First of all, it says that they were ignorant. They were ignorant. Verse 3 begins, for not knowing about the righteousness of God. Israel was ignorant of God's righteousness. Their ignorance was not based upon the fact that nobody told them. No, their ignorance was based upon their refusal to learn from what they had been told. So, so their, their ignorance is not, not based uh, off of a lack of information or a lack of opportunity. No, they, they, they had the promise. They had the covenants. They had the law. They had the patriarchs. They had the prophets. They had multitude of opportunities to respond in faith. No, in their case, no, their ignorance was, was birthed from a, a stubborn refusal to accept God's Word. It was all rebellion, resistance. Israel refused to submit and surrender to God. They refused and they rejected Jesus. They were too proud of their good works. They were filled with so much religious self-righteousness that they refused to admit their sins in need of a Savior. Again, Paul can relate to this. Paul understood this. Because before his encounter with Jesus, Paul had made the same mistake. He writes about it in Philippians chapter 3. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever these things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss 
for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. And then He says, in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The Israelites did not understand the extent of God's righteousness. They didn't understand how it would be achieved. They didn't understand how it would be ultimately made available to all people. So in their ignorance, they sought to establish their own righteousness. So they didn't feel the need for salvation. They were distracted by their zeal for God. They were ignorant and they were self-righteous. Back to verse 3. It says, For not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. Rather than living by faith in God in an effort to try to make themselves acceptable in God's sight, Israelites developed all kinds of customs and traditions. Which means that regardless of our sincerity, no matter the level or the intensity of our motivation, no human effort can ever substitute for the righteousness that God offers unto us through His Son. It is impossible for us to earn salvation. There's not a single person who deserves salvation. We will never be able to work for salvation. All we can do is extend with empty hands and receive God's gift of salvation by His grace through faith in His Son. Verse 3 has more. Verse 3 says that they were ignorant, that they were self-righteous. It says that they were stubborn for not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. See, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. Then He gave His life as the payment for the penalty that we deserve for breaking and violating the law of God. And when we believe in Christ, His righteousness becomes our righteousness. He gives us His righteousness so that we might be in a right relationship with the Father. So that we can be acceptable to God. The Israelites refused to recognize and receive this truth. 
They refused to submit and surrender their lives unto the Savior. And so God did not accept the Israelites because they put their faith in their own efforts rather than submit and surrendering their lives unto Jesus. Notice what verse 4 says. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Which means, ultimately, the law should drive us to Christ. Christ is the point of the law. Christ is the goal of the law. Christ is the meaning of the law. Therefore, if you try to obey or follow the law, but you ignore or avoid Christ, then you've missed the whole point of the law altogether. The question for us to consider, do you believe? So I was reading this week, I came across something I found really interesting. And I think that applies in this moment. Where it says, it says, I, I don't understand electricity. But I'm no fool. I'm not going to sit around in the dark until I do. I don't understand the thermodynamics of internal combustion. Nor do I understand the hydraulics of an automatic transmission. But I'm no fool. I'm not going to sit at home until I do understand these things. The truth is, I don't understand a lot of things that are a part of my everyday life. But I still make them a part of my everyday life. I would argue the same is true about salvation. No one will fully understand salvation. No one will fully understand how an eternal, triune God could become a man. How he could die. And how his death could be the basis for our forgiveness. And how he can give me and how he can give you a new life in Christ. No one will, will fully understand how God's sovereignty and human responsibility work perfectly together. Uh, but only a fool would ignore the great opportunity that God gives us to repent and believe in His Son. The question is, do you believe? Do you realize that on your own there is no hope of salvation do you put your faith and trust in what jesus has accomplished on your behalf and if you do believe and you do belong to the father then how is that being evidenced in your life today in other words what does the fruit of your salvation look like let's pray heavenly father thank you for this church god thank you for the privilege to be together today to worship you to give you honor and the glory that you deserve father for the great privilege of taking your word and opening up and expositing it verse by verse chapter by chapter we give you great thanks father thank you for the benefit that we have for having the complete scriptures in our possession 
Father, may we have a hunger for your word. May we eagerly desire to open it up every single day and just pour into your word. God, not only that, but may we also have that desire to rightly apply your word to our hearts and lives. As we gather today, Father, we're all in different places in life. Father, I understand that there are two groups of people in this room watching or listening right now. There are those that belong to you and those that don't. God, for those that don't belong to you, a prayer remains for them, for their salvation. Father, for those that do, a prayer for them is faithful obedience. Help us to understand what it means to walk in obedience to you to serve you faithfully until you call us into your presence. So it's this time that we have to respond to your word. I pray that decisions would be made that would honor and glorify you. May we not be in a rush just to walk out of here ever so quickly, but may we just sit and savor this moment and consider what is the right response today. We ask your blessings upon this time. May you be glorified in and through it. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.